Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing Brand 7, Sansa 6, and Danny 9 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? Do you think, and he watched it a decade ago, makes me sound really old or helps people understand when the TV show came out? Michael, you are really old. <laughs> Savage. Suck it! <laughs> <laughs> fucking worst. Uh, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Over this. Well, Bye, everybody. <laughs> this has been fun. Uh, uh, you know, I wonder if people until now had guesses of who was older. Uh that would be fun for me, I think. Well, I do like that when people see us in person, they seem to regularly think you're the older one. Hey. <laughs> I like to think of it as a maturity thing. Mm. That's okay. They get to hear you, too, and find out that that's not really true. So, damn it. Got him. Okay. Well, I deserved all of this. All that's right. Well, fair. thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode. We'll catch you next week on Brothers Step Banners. <laughs> <laughs> That sounded like you were channeling your inner Guy Fieri there. That's right. Come and check you out on Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dragons. Uh... <laughs> that actually sounds like a show George R. R. Martin would make. Dude loves food. Uh, should we should we get into things here? We've think... got uh, got three chapters to get through today. We we do. Uh, I'm excited, man. I'm, I actually got really excited about all these chapters. I'm stoked to get into nice. them. So just dive headfirst. I don't have much to say besides they're they're fantastical, which is a word you were saying yeah. before the episode. And I'm saying... yeah, we're starting to get a little more of the fantasy side of things here. And I'll add to, and I think we're seeing it through these three chapters. But but I've been saying this for a little while. Like I, the book's coming to a close. You know, there's just few pages left in front of us. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's getting like it's kind of ramping up what we're gonna get into in in a future book. You know, I think that there's this book has been sort of establishing a world that seems to be falling apart right now, and as it falls apart, we're being brought into it, right? Uh, in in sort of a heavy-handed way, in the best ways. So I'm I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we talking Bran. Bran. Which Bran is this? This is Bran 7. Oh, I'm sorry. I actually meant which Bran out of the 10,000 brands <laughs> that apparently live in this, this world. Is our, this is our good old Raisin Bran. Good old classic. Raisin Bran. Uh, all right. Okay. Okay, so let's kick off. Bran, as we last left him, is stuck at Winterfell as a cripple. He's hanging out with Maester Lewin. And nobody's at Winterfell anymore. I mean, basically mm -hmm. nobody, right? Yeah, he's alone. And we find out very early in this chapter, I mean, they kind of hit the nail right on the head. It starts with Bran watching the young men who were left, teenagers, really young teenagers, practicing with Sir Roderick with wooden swords. Yeah, and uh, they suck. They do, but they are in Bran's opinion. children. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> but Maester Lewin kind of hits the nail right on the head, right out of the gate, which is, I, I think it's Lewin who said it, uh, which is that... When Ned left to go down to King's Landing, he took the cream of the crop. And when mm -hmm. Rob left, he took everybody else. And now, yeah. and, and Maester Lewin's not one to beat around the bush around this, and especially with Bran, and Bran seems to kind of accept it well, which is that there should be no expectation that all the men who were taken are about to come back. Uh, we need to find people to replace them, to guard these walls, to guard Winterfell, and that's what's, what's happening right now. And that's what sort of is being watched 
all of this is happening. Yeah, kind of. it's nice to see some some preparation also from Sir Roderick and from Maester Lewin here, because mm-hmm. you know there there's no immediate threat to Winterfell. The fighting is in the south. The fighting is in the Riverlands uh, around King's Landing. Clearly, there are some issues and things of that nature, but they are at war and. They're going to need to be prepared. This is something Rob was thinking about in terms of the path back up north and leaving that open. Like there is a possibility, despite the the defenses that are in place and the extreme distance between them, that the fighting could come to their doorstep. And so you might as well take advantage of this time to get ready. Right. I'll add too that there is a bit of boredom in the tone going on right now, just from Bran and Maester Lewin and stuff. They're Bran doesn't have much to do, and he's trying to stay busy just watching stuff and hanging out with Maester Lewin, and Maester Lewin's doing his own thing. They're just chatting. It's just a very kind of general... Yeah, Maester Lewin is looking through a telescope at a comet. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, You know, Bran goes through, and and I'm going to... It's a fun beginning to the chapter. There's some more interesting things to talk about towards the end of this chapter, so I'll kind of speed us in that direction. I will say that, you know, Bran... Bran kind of is is fantasizing a little bit. I could be, you know, maybe I could be a knight if Hodor is my legs. Uh, yeah, I like carry that idea. Me and I'll do it. It's like the the jousting we did in the pool. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And he even goes on, you know, and, and Maester Lewin kind of, you know, brushes them off a little bit, and and then uh, Bran goes on to say, you know, Old Nan told me once about a knight who was blind, and sure enough, Maester Lewin says, oh yeah, Simeon Star Eyes. Yeah, uh, he knows the story. <laughs> but it's just he again is brushing it off, and I think that. This sets up the, 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 the setting very, very well because it's a lot of Bran fantasizing and, and Maester Lewin saying, no, 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 come back down to reality. Bran goes into a dream that he had uh, the mm-hmm. night before. And he says, you know, last night I dreamed of the crow with three eyes again. And he took me, we, we, he flew me down. I was flying with him into the crypts where I saw my father. He was there and he was sad. Yeah, and of course, as as the readers, right. we hear this and immediately say, well, one chapter ago, <laughs> Ned got executed, so a dream of him in the crypts. There's something that immediately draws your attention to, that, like we were just saying, fantastical, to the, the spirituality of it, that kind of all-sight that we saw Bran have during exactly. his coma, that maybe there's some reflection of that. And... I, I like what you were saying. It's perfectly with the contrast with Maester Lewin because what he's doing is really realistic and being a, a teacher. He's being kind about it, but Bran needs to focus on the real world. This is yeah. somebody who needs to, and we've seen Bran make progress and fits and starts with addressing his disability and dealing with the reality of the way things are. And he seems to be taking a step back into what's more ridiculous, what's more legendary, mythical, the things that aren't going to be real to him. And Lewin's trying to prevent that. And to have the, the dramatic irony of positioning that right alongside a dream that we know is, uh, maybe prophetic is the wrong word, but at least true in yep. some real sense. And to have Maester Lewin have the same reaction to that really makes you wonder what future is Bran going to have as a knight, as a fighter, as something, and, and where might he land in that world? I'll add, too, that this is a really, really fun contrast between these two characters, because we the reader have an understanding we then see bran who isn't trusting himself and his own senses right because he's like oh yeah it's a fantastical dream and maester lewin saying you have to come down to reality which we the reader know to be something different than lewin does yeah i will add that uh in this conversation as he talks as bran talks about his dream uh john john snow gets mentioned 
you know, mm-hmm. Lewin says, why was, why was your father sad? And he says, you know, I wasn't sure. I think it had something to do with John. And that's sort of as far as that goes, but I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting. Again, you and I as readers know that maybe this is because Ned's dead, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but now all of a sudden John's getting brought into this a little bit. So is there another relationship here going on? Like, like is there something that Bran's seeing that we don't know about yet? So I just thought that was interesting. And I well, let me, let me ask you, why do you have any thoughts on why it is there might be a reflection in Ned's sadness? If this is, I, I don't know, on some mystical level ned visiting bran in his dreams and or or at least some god wizard figure whatever it may be communicating something about ned to bran in his dreams what is it that's making ned sad about john i don't know i will say that at about a page and a half from now another character is brought up that i will want to bring back to this moment and say maybe it's that okay Uh, but but I, I don't know, is it, you know, not caring enough about John or the threat that might be coming to John or anything? But I, John and Ned haven't had much of a relationship at all since early, early in this book. Yeah, you know, I'll just throw out there the possibility, you know, with the one overarching mystery that we have here of Ned being the person who holds the secret close to his chest of John's mother. And with Ned now gone, that may be lost. Mm-hmm. That could... We don't have any information, anything that would lead us to believe that there is somewhere else that that could be. So maybe there is some attempt to communicate through Bran's uh, spiritual knowledge, his download from the gods or whatever it may be, this fact that may otherwise be lost to the, the tides of the universe here. Maybe, but I think Ned has a lot to be sort of sad about right now when it comes to things in his family. And and I say this again, not That's to disagree totally with fair. you and your perspective. I know yeah, you've yeah. read it before, but like for me right now, I, I have no idea. Ned being sad and the fact that somebody in his family is included in that sadness wasn't... Seems right. Yeah, it didn't become itchy to me. It wasn't like, what's happening there? I was like, yeah, he's okay. dead. This yeah. sucks. His whole family's falling apart. Totally reasonable. I... We find out that Bran has tried to get Hodor to take him down into the crypts, but Hodor refused it. I just wasn't having it. Was scared to go down there. We don't know mm-hmm. if that's because he has some connection to the mystical himself, or is just sort of an oaf. Uh, yeah, I mean, like the crypts are dark and scary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then uh, we have, you know, the reintroduction of of Osha. She comes back. We find out that she. Can, this was our our wandering, whatever she's called, the the wildlings. Wild she's a wildling. Thank but uh, she was the one that was caught and brought down, and it turns out that she's been settling in nicely at Winterfell, and people are starting to like her as a servant. I mean, she's very much a captive still, but uh, she's been, like, sort of fitting in better and better. And, mm-hmm. you know, Lewin basically says, hey, if Hodor won't take you down there, I know somebody who will. It's Osha, and Osha kind of, kind of comes and grabs Bran, and they all they all kind of take a, take a picnic down there. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing, like a, like, a continued growth of her relationship with Bran here. We had that interaction between them and the godswood right before Rob left to go south, where she was telling him about her experiences in the north and and the more mystical side. And it's a fun foil to Maester Lewin and to his grounded logic and science-based approach to the world, that we have this person who seems to be trying to encourage Bran to tap in to these other things that Maester Lewin is discouraging. So it's it's almost like the, it's not good and evil, but the angel and the devil on, on Bran's shoulders here. Yeah. And I think, too, to, to stress what you're saying, you know, angel and the devil, is, you know, this sort of like realist versus the, the soothsayer, if you will. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and I think that it's interesting to see Bran facing that and 
this chapter, I think, makes it even more interesting, which we'll see as we get closer to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they go, you know, Bran calls to Summer, his his direwolf, and they all kind of take a little parade down there, right? It's Maester Lewin leading the way. It's Osha carrying Bran, and Summer the dog is there. Uh, and they're going down, and they get to the crypt, and Summer kind of decides not to go into the crypt. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was interesting. Like, like, while we were even just saying just a second ago that we as readers already know the fate of Ned and that maybe Bran has seen something here, I don't think it's rare in a book of any kind for a character to have some type of premonition like this and that it right. doesn't have to be from the gods or something mystical. The fact that Summer the direwolf is hesitant if not refusing to go into the crypts makes me think, wow, maybe it's more than premonition that Bran has had. Maybe there's a spirit down here. Maybe there's something yeah. more going on because uh, the direwolves seem to have a little bit more of a relationship to the fantastical than, than other characters and animals that we've sort of experienced. Absolutely, and and we've certainly seen occasions of the direwolves reacting negatively to people around the Starks before and having some sort of intuition from that perspective. On the flip side, we have also seen plenty of instances of the direwolves uh, mimicking and taking on the characteristics and emotions of their caregiver. Uh, and so in this case, maybe uh, Hodor and Summer were each in their own way picking up on some fear off of Bran rather than expressing their own disdain mm-hmm. for going down there. Summer to a much more strong degree because of that tie between them. But even Hodor as, as a person kind of feeling that motion pouring off Bran, I, I can imagine that that played some role in all of these people around Bran not wanting to go down until you get to Osha, the, Osha, the stronger person who's more uh, stronger too uh, abrupt of a word, but the the person more in tune with herself, more able to uh, work within her own feelings rather than piggyback yeah. off of brands. Maester Lewin also is like head first in there. He's like, it's the crypts. We, who cares? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's go. And in fact, Maester Lewin takes it one step further and says, what a great opportunity, Bran. Why don't you go through your history as they pass all of these sort of sculptures of those here in the crypts, right? This This is his family tree. This is his lineage that he comes through and he goes yeah right right when they get down one. there he says yeah he does he says to to himself they were the kings of winter and osha has this great response that i wanted to highlight winter's got no king winter's got no it, kings. you'd know that summer boy uh and coming from a wildling coming from north of the wall and the threats of the winter but also the capital w winter of the others and, and the threat beyond the wall i think makes for a nice uh multifaceted comment from osha there certainly one that she intended in every possible direction yeah i actually i highlighted that too and i I think it's fun to you know it's almost and i don't mean this in a direct comparison type way but it's fun it's fun the osha character compared to like old nan right like Mm -hmm. osha is old nan 40 years younger and you know or 80 years younger whatever it is Uh, and having actually experienced the things yeah and you know, ready to kind of, like, like not brush offable uh, in a way that Old Nan kind of is. And so I just thought that was fun. Yeah. I want to quickly run through some of the history here, if you don't mind, just because I think it's fun and because and I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, l- later on in the process, dovetails with some of the things we've talked about in other contexts. But going through these, one of the things that really stuck out to me is how the names are patterned 
you have the same names that you have in the current day with the Starks, they're clearly picking up on their ancestors and the royal lineage and the royal names that have come before them. So we have John Stark, we have Rickard, but not the same one as my dad. We have Theon Stark, which is interesting since Theon's not even mm-hmm. of their family. Uh, we, of course, as you've already mentioned, have multiple Brandons, another mm-hmm. Roderick. Uh, and so just a- across the board here, just all of these references that, that clearly like nobility throughout all of history, they're pulling from the same pool of names. The other thing that I find interesting is a lot of the history that's being spelled out here is the building of the North as a kingdom Mm -hmm. and then later as a region. We have the building the castle at White Harbor, which we know is now the Manderleys. We have conquering the Neck by the, uh, uh, excuse me, not conquering, but doing it through marriage with their daughter there. Mm There was uh, stories of wars and taking over land through wars and extending uh, to Bear Island, which they gave over to the Mormons. And you're just kind of seeing this growth of the feudal state into more and more areas and building these allegiances through conquest, through marriage, through diplomacy and all of the various aspects that really fleshes out how lived in this world is. And then it culminates eventually the story with the end of the line of kings and the start of the line of lords of the north when they kneel to the Targaryens. The king who knelt, Torrin Stark. I, yeah, I like that a lot. And exactly what you're saying, right? Not only is this a lineage, but it's also a, 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 a telling of the history of this area, mm-hmm. of this region, which is just really cool. Yeah, you kind of have the one thing each of these kings is known for. And through that, you learn how the north progressed from what it, from a small... A small duchy around, like, where dukes are, uh, <laughs> around Winterfell. the duchy on the left-hand side, Dan. There you go. That's, that's where it's from. Uh, and it is a fun, and I'll, I'll add more than just a fun moment of history here, it's tight in a way that we don't usually experience from George R. R. Martin. This is yes. one paragraph. It just is bulleting through these characters and this development. We're getting a history lesson in a way that we have not We've experienced different versions of history and different rumors and, you know, this and that. But this is a really, really direct moment. It kind of mirrors what Sansa and, what was it, Jane Poole kind of did at the tournament where they pointed at different right. characters and said, look, this, this person, person and this, this person, person, this person. Except this is much more linear like from a historical perspective than, than what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'll add there's a comment that happens here towards the end where we get to Lyanna and Brandon next to Lord mm-hmm. Rickard. So this is Lyanna Stark and Brandon Stark, the bro- the sister and brother, respectively, of Ned Stark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've obviously heard plenty about them. And in fact, and this is the comment that I made just a moment ago in regards to, like, maybe why would he talk about, why was Ned be sad about Jon John Snow? Uh, Osha makes a comment. She says, the maid's a fair one, pointing at Lyanna. To which uh, Bran responds back, Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince, uh, I'm sorry, Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her. Mm-hmm. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died and never got back at all. He never got her back at all. I, God, Rhaegar's been showing up a lot recently. Uh, yeah. In these sort of telling moments, we were talking about, you, you had mentioned, you know, would would Ned be sad about something with Jon Snow and whatever this might be, and I'm going to go back to what I've been saying for a while now. Maybe it wasn't rape. Maybe this Jon Snow is the offspring, the child of Lyanna, a Stark. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rhaegar, who we know gave flowers to Leon at a tournament, even though he was right. married and whatever. Uh, but I, <laughs> I like this because these two sentences that Bran says are some of the most tightest and, and succinct about the situation that we've gotten. Yeah. Period. 
you know, and, and I was glad to see it and glad to go through it. And I kind of, I'm going to say like, I wish this had been sent earlier, but I don't mean that from a structural or style type thing. I just yeah, wanted yeah. to know it succinctly earlier. Right. I think it's also fun to see. We've talked a lot about uh, propaganda and the informational warfare of stories and things like that. So it's fun to see this summary uh, so close on the heels of a summary from Daenerys in mm-hmm. very small form and tight form, but that we talked about last week where she mentioned Rhaegar dying for the woman he loved and assuming, as we discussed last time, that that's about, that that was about Lyanna, that this is the two halves. You have a child effectively on one side and Daenerys and a child literally on the other side and Bran telling the exact opposite story of the same events and how that can shape things. We also do have a mention here just because we've talked before about what is our complete knowledge of things and and we've heard some references to this but i want to point it out again uh bran points out there's my grandfather lord rickard who was beheaded by mad king eris uh, and he says that before pointing out brandon and Lyanna. so it's just another piece of that that story of ned's childhood and where things stood there yeah because i know we were talking i think just an episode or two ago about what was this war even about we know the mm-hmm. mad king was mad Right. You know, and what what was that? But now we're seeing, you know, we here, we're starting to get a better sense of Rhaegar as a catalyst, whatever his actions were, and how you know the the, the uh, Robert Baratheon was reacting to that. We now, mm-hmm. I think, for the first time, really find out that Targaryens have taken a violent action against Starks here with that beheading that you're talking about. Yeah, like a like a, a tyranny of the Mad King that right. has been kind of hinted at, but we're getting more details too. Exactly. Um, Osha makes a romantic comment, romantic maybe not be the right word, but she says, you know, that's a sad story about this, you know, Liana and all of this, but, uh, you know, the sadder things here are the empty spaces, those that will be right. buried here. The tombs uh, that are waiting for people. Maester Lewin goes and steps forward, he says, ah, don't even worry, there's nothing here, look, Bran, your father's not here, he goes to reach where the father's spot, where Ned's spot would be, and he's attacked, Dan. Mm-hmm. The darkness sprang at him snarling. Uh, it's such a fun jump scare. I mean, it's, those are hard to execute in text, but uh, I, I think it's a fun moment. My first reaction was that it was one of the others. But that that was where really? my head. Yeah, I was like, oh, I was fun. sure that they they he was he was. I was sure that this is where this story was going. Right, Winterfell, mm-hmm. protected from the war that is so far distant from them, is now under attack by what what is closer to them. That would make sense and, and be a really fun way to have started the chapter with, look at how screwed they are if something shows up right now. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is when they hit. Uh, but said, that is not it. It's not it. It actually turns out that it's Shaggy Dog. It's Rickon's mm-hmm. direwolf. Uh, Summer comes bounding in. We have a direwolf fight. I mm-hmm. uh, and sh- Brotherly love. Yeah, I suppose so. I'll, we, we find out, and I'll ask you here, but, but I... I got a little lost here. I, we all we know from a chapter previous that Rickon is going a little nutty. Everybody yes. keeps leaving. Everybody keeps not returning. He is falling apart. And as he falls apart, so too does his direwolf. With mm-hmm. that said, he kind of pops up out of nowhere right now. It turns out he's been following them. He just followed them down into the crypts. And I don't know why Shaggy Dog is pouncing at Maester Lewin. I don't think there's a reason. So I don't think he followed them down to the crypts. I, I think, think he and there. Shaggy Dog were already here. Oh, and, okay. and, and crucially, I think what it is is uh, he calls Shaggy Dog, Rickon calls Shaggy Dog away from Summer to get them to stop fighting. He says, you let my father be, Rickon warned Lewin. You let him be. 
Rickon Brand said softly, Father's not here. And Rickon says, yes, he is. I saw him. Mm -hmm. Tears glistened on Rickon's face. I saw him last night. And it turns out that Rickon had the same dream as Bran. So much like Bran's first instinct was, I should go down to the crypts to check, but he was unable to because of Hodor, Rickon seems to have had the same exact response to things and was already here when they got there. Just kind of skipped down there. Yeah. Okay, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, the chapter The chapter kind of quickly pivots from here. So... We have this moment. Maester Lewin's pretty upset. He's in shock. He's been yeah. attacked. He's definitely injured. Um, we also got to note that Bran had never seen Maester Lewin look so uncertain before. So I think in addition to the, the trauma of being attacked by this savage direwolf, he's also really concerned about... It's undermining his certainty. They both yeah. had the same dream on the same night, and yeah. they had the same reaction to it. Uh, it's a man of science being confronted with something unexplainable and uh and he's struggling to deal with that although he does come up with an explanation in a few pages here yeah and i'll say and that's a sort of pivot here right so they um they all kind of leave and decide to go to maester lewin's tower uh where Mm -hmm. they'll kind of like deal with maester lewin's injuries and talk through this more and kind of all kind of regroup there was a moment before that though that i really liked where rickon where bran says you know rickon would you like to come with me like let's get out of here and rickon says no i like it here uh which mm-hmm. I enjoyed. I like seeing Rickon becoming a character. We really haven't experienced him except third hand. Uh, we hear what he's done around other people. And this is really some of the first engagement we're getting from Rickon. And I'm enjoying it. He's a weird, yeah. little, cat, like a weird little guy right now. Yeah, he's going through it. Um, we have a little bit of, of uh, attitude. Attitude might be the wrong word. But Osha, you know... Bran says, let's go to Maester Lewin's tower. We'll just take care of stuff there. And Maester Lewin says, no, 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 that makes no sense. And Osha's like, well, he's the little lordling, isn't he? If he says we're going, we're going. And I, like I kind of like her, her attitude towards her, her captor a little bit, in this case, Lewin. She right? seems to have, have uh, she has an attitude towards Lewin, but she seems to really have taken a liking to Bran, which I enjoy. Yeah. Um, so next we find ourselves up in the tower. Osha is helping Maester Lewin kind of bandage himself and at his direction. Mm-hmm. To what you were just saying, Maester Lewin is continuing to try to chew through how both of these children had the same dream on the same night. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you know, it is odd, but I suppose it's only natural. You guys must leave your father, must uh, miss your father. Uh, and, you know, like, the fact is dreams are only dreams. And Osha is starting to be a little bit more of a vocal character here. Some are dreams. You know, some dreams are only dreams. Some aren't, Osha says. Uh, and this actually takes us into a really, what I thought was interesting, side moment, if you Yeah, will, a little digression. Uh, where they, they get into a conversation about these children of the woods. Uh, of the forest. Of yes. the forest, I'm sorry. Um, you know, the, the it, 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 this is story time, and I don't know how else to say it. It, it is a way for Maester Lewin to share insight and history about the evolution of the magical experience of this area into what it is today as told Mm -hmm. through these characters that i think we've even heard of a little bit in passing yeah they've been mentioned before one of the things i really enjoy in this series we've talked a lot about you know people's experience with the things that don't exist in the fairy tales and the histories and things of that nature but there is a contrast i i've been quick to point out you know how would you feel if you 
were in a situation that made you think it was goblins or zombies or whatever and you're like of course that can't be the case but it is true this is the man of science talking about history real history that he believes happened that they think they have documented and so it's not that it doesn't exist it's that it doesn't exist anymore and that's a crucial distinction here for somebody like lewin um i agree I agree, but I also do want to point at something that's that's a little continues to be tough for me, just in in the writing style here. In in in, in well, I'll just say it right, like yeah. in the same way that we saw up in the north, uh, up at the wall, where these others sort of came to life, and you know, uh, and who is it? Um, oh, uh, Mormont, you know, yes. basically says, "Gosh, I can't believe we didn't remember that fire is." What harms right. these things, right? It's like, you would think somebody would have written that down somewhere, right? Like, y'all up here... And same thing here. All of a sudden, Maester Lewin is going through this history of these children of the... Trees? Of forest. Of the forest. And it's like, oh yes, this was very much a real part of this, but but is so quick to kind of, like, poo-poo it away. Mm-hmm. I, I will add, though, that all of this starts because... Um, he says, the man who trusts in spells is dueling with a glass sword. This is, you know, he, he's, Maester Lewin is saying this in, in contradiction to Osha and yes. what she's saying about the strength of magic. And he says, with a glass sword. And in fact, he then goes on to say that uh, glass weapons were sort of the weapons of the children of the forest. And that's... Dragon glass, specifically obsidian. Obsidian. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of why they lost in the end. And then he goes through a history, which I thought was interesting because it's the second very tight narrative history in this chapter. The first yeah. being in the crypt. This one, in almost a very similar, if not identical way, is going through... Yeah, it's a tale of these characters, right? These children of the forest. Uh, but the... It, it really is giving a developmental history of this area. It's saying, you know, this is, we, we find out that through, and I, I don't want to go through the, all the details of this. I don't think it's as interesting as it could be yeah. just for us to talk about. But but I think that, like, we find out, like, where the, where the, whatever they're called, the, the face trees, why they have the werewoods, faces. Yeah. yeah, the werewoods and, and the value of that. We get a lot more understanding about the evolution of the of, of the faith of the sort of first men versus the 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 you know the magic that was there before versus the seven gods that then came after and right. how one you know one faith and belief system kind of came and re- replaced the other kind of came and replaced the other with all of that said and i think it's a really fun history that we go through the end of the day the big takeaway is like, wow, some of the things that Maester Lewin kind of poo-poos, it turns out are not old Nan stories, right? Just these farcical, you know, fantastical stories. Right. But these are, just like you were saying, these are real. This was part of the experience up here. It's just old. It's just antiquated at this time. It's not really as relevant as the things going on now. But I thought that was a really interesting acceptance of the fantastical here. Yeah, absolutely. Just to briefly run through what the history is, because I think it's interesting to point out where Maester Lewin's blind spots seem to lie here. The children of the forest were the main inhabitants of this land until the first men appeared from the east, crossing the broken arm of Dorne before it was broken. They proceeded to fight with the children of the forest and were winning. They were pushing the children of the forest out. They were cutting down some of the werewood groves and the children of the forest uh, called down the waters and broke that 
broken arm uh, so as to close the door. Um, it was too late. There were too many first men here, but they ultimately came to a conclusion to work together. Uh, and, and the first men adopted the same gods, the gods of the forest and the werewoods and things of that nature, which lasted until another migration into Westeros occurred, which was the Andals, which of course we've heard before that Robert and now Joffrey are uh, kings of the first men and the Andals and the Roinars, the third one who are not mentioned here. But this is where the faith of the seven came from. They showed up with their seven gods, they forced the first men back, and that was when they were really cutting down and, and taking out the werewoods and the god, uh, the, the god's woods. And the reason why I point this out just as a blind spot for Lewin is that clearly the children of the forest and this type of magical world was exterminated here. And he, and it seems his order, have extrapolated that to mean it does not exist at all. And this is right. specifically what Osha is responding to. Just because you haven't seen it in these areas where the Andals showed up and wiped them out does not mean that they're not around anymore in places like North of the Wall, where those cultures never penetrated. This history comes to an end as they talk through it. I, and all of a sudden, Shaggy Dog bounds to his feet. And Summer kind of joins him, and they both start to howl. And they both... Uh, and, and Bran has an internal thought. He says, it's coming. Yeah. Uh, he he kind of gets an idea. He knows what's about to happen. He has a prescient sense of what this means. And he even says, you know, he, he knew it. He knew it from the dream. He didn't want to accept it. He wanted so badly for Maester Lewin to be right. But he knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, Osha has a wonderful comment here. Uh, what, so, so basically, a, a, a raven, a raven arrives, arrives, yeah, with with a message, and the raven's even been attacked. We can tell it's like definitely kind of injured, and Maester Lewin's kind of a little taken aback by that, and he's also taken aback that this raven's here. What could this mean? dark wings, dark words, right? Like I love this because it's we have this moment. Maester Lewin rose slow as a sleepwalker and moved to the window. He knows it too. Yep, he knows it too. He has the same. I mean, it's not prescient in the way that Bran is, but as soon as that raven gets there, everyone in the room knows what it's going to say. Even the guy who's been denying it all chapter long. And Maester Lewin goes and unrolls it. Bran says, "What is it?" And Osha responds, not unkindly, "You know what it is, boy." And sure enough, Maester Lewin says, we're going to have to find a stone mason who knew your father's likeness well. Because uh, he's going in the crypt. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's a tight chapter. It really just throughout this is seated. And I absolutely love the repeated instances, which we kind of skipped past of Maester Lewin. He says so many times, your father's not going to be down there in the crypts for years. He's fine. Right. I'm comforting the children, but also the dreams are nonsense. And so to come around to this final landing point of the chapter and have what we know confirmed to the characters in the scene as well, I think is just such a perfect little little uh, uh, scene, little moment. I'll say, uh, so that's the end of the chapter. I will say this is one of my more favorite chapters in the book so far. Uh, mm-hmm. It... it, it, it it does a lot of what I want, which is number one starts to hit that fantasy gong pretty hard. Yes, and if not diving headfirst, headfirst into it is starting to give me a sense that this storyline for Bran and potentially Osha and Rickon and whatever Lewin, I suppose. But like this, we may start <laughs> to find these characters invested more in the fantasy side of this, and I'm, I'm very excited about that. There's even a line earlier where Bran's sharing his dream and he flew down with the crow. And we knew that flying was a big part of that dream when he was in a coma. I wonder if he's going right. to find some powers within himself. Maybe he can fly. 
But I'm very excited to see that. I loved that we got not just one, but two concise, succinct histories. This is a chronological telling of what's going on here. There's no dreams of blue. There's no dreams of red. There's no dreams of Liana. <laughs> it's it, you know, it, it, it's not subtle. It, it, in, yeah. a, in a way that I, that's really graspable to me. No, I totally get that. Given from the style of George R. R. Martin, it wouldn't surprise me if this uh, peak of excitement in the fantasy world of Brand might might become a bit of a you know, might, might take a, a step back in the next few chapters. Right. That, uh, with all of that said, I'm excited to see what Bran ends up. I don't, I, I don't know. We, we, this chapter, more than it brought us somewhere new, uh, it showed us new capacities for these characters. And I'm very excited to see where they go with that. I love that. Should we keep going? Sansa time? Let's do it. Which Sansa is this? This is Sansa 6. Sansa's only 6. Jesus. Um, I, I was thinking uh, about going through this chapter a little faster than we typically go through chapters because yeah, I found there, while there's some fun moments throughout this, I found that there was really just one, call it two significant takeaways from this chapter. Just to touch on it, the chapter starts this post, uh, uh, beheading of Ned and Sansa's dealing with this. She is messed up by it. Understandably, she felt like she had promises from the queen, and she thought from Joffrey as well. She thought her father was safe, that she had worked to protect him. She is unbelievably upset at the fact that Joffrey has turned out to be such a dill weed. Um, <laughs> Interesting choice of insult. Yeah, she's, she's betrayed by him. She's heartbroken about her father. Mm-hmm. There is so much of the artifice that we've been talking about with respect to Sansa all book that is shattered here and it's her trying to pick up the pieces of that and there are moments that I'm going to want to point to when we get to them where her personality and who she is still shines through it's not lost Mm -hmm. but it is broken she cannot ignore what has just happened in front of her this is a a foundational trauma yeah I agree and that's how we see it for the first few pages of this uh, of this chapter she's in her room and refusing to go anywhere she can't eat she can't function she's just staying in bed she's beyond depressed I mean like like she's she's apoplectic yeah we very rapidly get to the first of, of the moments I was mentioning with her personality shining through I just want to mention she has this thought process about wanting to maybe kill herself she mm-hmm. wants to throw herself from the window and we have this line her her body would lie on the stones below broken and innocent shaming all those who had betrayed her uh, in the years to come the singers would write songs of her grief and that's still it's still the songs it's still looking at it through those golden eyes and the stories people might tell of her afterwards and not still not fully engaged with the control of the narrative and the control of the concepts that the Lannisters would be able to exert over things in that world and in that context. Uh, it's it's an attraction to the heroic and the legendary that is wonderfully childish. And now that it's combined with a realism and a, a cynicism about the way the world around her is working, I think it becomes that much more intriguing than when it was just naivety. I'll agree with all of that, although I will also take it one step further to say the action of the story that she's kind of weaving for herself demands action now, as opposed to, you know, what her stories have been in the past, which is, and then I will marry Joffrey and I will be a queen. Yes. 
and she's finding that she can't do it. She's thinking about throwing mm-hmm. herself off the wall, and yet she doesn't. Uh, she'll actually think about it again in a few pages and still doesn't. Uh, yeah. I think we're starting to see her facing the break away from the stories. If this was the story, she would have been the savior already. If this was the story, she would have killed herself already. It's not a right. story. It's just her life. Um, some people come in and out a little bit, but it's not that important until, sure enough, Joffrey comes in. Joffrey yes. comes in with uh, Sandor Clegane and that other guy. I believe mm. it is Marin Trant. Trant, that's right. And Sir uh, Marin Trant, he's a, a knight of the Kingsguard who's just kind of been uh, one of the faceless knights of the Kingsguard so far. Right. Um, we have basically what is a, a pretty straightforward scene here. Joffrey is really showing his true colors. I don't know mm-hmm. how else to say it. We've seen glimpses of this. Sansa's seen it through her rose-colored glasses. The rose-colored glasses are off now. It's uh, really stuck out to me this time, having mm-hmm. you know read this book after having watched the show. Joffrey is such a villain in the show, and that kind of seeds through his character throughout this. But this is the first moment where it comes through in force. Like you said, we've seen glimpses, we've seen moments before now, and now he is truly sociopathic, and, and we're seeing that behavior throughout the course of this chapter. And so it's been interesting for me to notice that maybe uh, in previous reads I had been bringing that conception of him to his earlier actions in this story as well. Yeah. I I will say, and I'm, again, not going to pause at, at, at not not to go into terribly yeah, yeah. great detail here but joffrey basically is straightforward he's like listen sansa, sansa says let me go back to winterfell oh, let me get out of here like let me let, like what am i even doing here anymore and he says look you are here because my mom says you should be and i'm gonna have babies with you my mom even says that you're a stupid girl and if our children are stupid if the first kid's stupid i'm gonna kill you and i'll find somebody else sansa's a little taken aback by this she didn't realize that cersei had this type of opinion Joffrey might be embellishing, but the fact is we know Cersei to be pretty uh, duplicitous as well. Right. Um, we do find, and so this is this is what I was saying a second ago. There's sort of two themes that we get to experience throughout this chapter, and, and it, it'll take us to some different places. But the two themes are this, and they show up right here early on in the chapter. One, Joffrey's a dick, mm-hmm. uh, through and through. I mean, he is, and he is. We find. And I'm going to jump around a little bit here. The chapter kind of moves like this. Joffrey comes to say, I need you to show up at court today. Clean your shit up. I don't care. Just do what I say. Right. Uh, Sansa's kind of shoved and slapped around a little bit and said, it's time to go. Uh, she goes to court and she watches Joffrey be an absolute asshole to the people in court, like to the people coming to him. And he's he is very vicious with what he decrees on. And afterwards, Joffrey uh, takes her. She realizes he, she's taking... He's taking her to go look at her father's head on a spike on on the roof, basically. Yeah. I want to single out a couple of things from just that that quick sequence of events Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Just very short. The first is that when Joffrey, he doesn't hit Sansa himself. He has Sir Meryn hit her Mm -hmm. instead. And he says specifically, my mother tells me that it isn't fitting that a king should strike his wife. And then he tells Sir Meryn to do it instead. And this moment, I think, is, is... a really great insight into Joffrey and his relationship with Cersei because Cersei is clearly speaking from her own personal experience with Robert who we saw hit her and we saw her reaction to that and this was not 
no matter what disdain she has for Sansa and the Starks, this is not what she meant. And we see Joffrey kind of asserting his own muscle and being his own garbage self, no matter what his mom is trying to boss him around. And so all of those conversations that we've had before now of, oh, Cersei is the real power behind the throne, maybe she's not as in control as everybody thought, that, that Joffrey is starting to... Uh, take over in his own right with all of the horrible ways that that is yeah the second one i wanted to focus on is joffrey after doing this then leaves with sir Marin trant and there's a brief moment with sander clegane yeah and that's turns to sansa turns to sansa and says save yourself some pain girl and give him what he wants and she says what does he want please tell me he wants you to smile and smell sweet and be his lady love he wants to hear you recite all your pretty little words the way the septa taught you he wants you to love him and fear him. And this fits so perfectly with what we've heard from Sander before about his relationship to knighthood and to violence. Of course, he's not a knight and he has utter disdain for the role of knights because of his interactions with Gregor, but he nonetheless plays that role. And so you almost see him giving Sansa the advice that he's internalized for himself, just tailored to femininity as opposed to masculinity. This is the role you have to play no matter how bullshit it is, because this is what the people are expecting of you push the pain down ignore the pain and so it's a little bit of his own personal childhood drama shining through here in his in how he's he's advising Sansa on how to be on how to act and deal with the situation you know it's funny because I was saying that there were two things kind of that 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 two big takeaways from this chapter one Joffrey's a dick uh two being Sander Clegane and Mm -hmm. I think I actually want to take what you're saying and for me it went a little further than that not only do I agree with you that this could be Sandra Clegane's own internalized personal experience with those who wear crowns or are, you know, knights right. and things like that, but there's actually, I felt, one step beyond that that he's doing, which is showing a real gentility and kindness to Sansa. Something, well, now, I think that's probably because he sees some of his own experience reflected in her, but there really does seem to be a tenderness. I think she even goes on to comment on it, not unkindly. You know, he he pushed her towards the wardrobe, not unkindly. Right. Uh, and things like this. And, and that even the comments that he's making to her, he's like, you know, I don't know where this comes from. I think it comes from something more than just his per- the personal experiences of Sandra Clegane that we've been privy to. But well, let me point something out for you. It's just a small thing, and mm-hmm. we'll have to keep an eye on how it grows. But the story that we heard about his experience with Gregor, of course, is that Gregor pushed him down in the fire, and that's how he got these burns. But the thing that started this was Sander, as the younger brother, wanted to play with a toy knight, specifically, that Gregor had. And so you can almost see that reflection of Bran, of that admiring the knighthood as a small child, similar to the way that Sansa was looking at the world and to have that stripped from him. And now he has perhaps watched her go through something similar of the shattering of those rose-colored glasses, of the destroying of the songs, that maybe at some point when he was very young, he believed in those two. And now we have this cynical husk of a man who is just trying to escape that. It's just a little thing. Playing with a toy is not necessarily something more significant than that, uh, but worth keeping an, an eye out for that maybe this is where he sees some of himself in her. I like that. I could see that. I, th- I will say that the affection goes, it seems, both ways. So while we see a kindness from Sandra Clegane to Sansa, and not just, it happens at a few moments throughout this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we even see there's a moment that happens after uh, Joffrey and Sandra Clegane leave, I think it leaves Sansa's room, uh, you know, what is it, uh, uh, What Marin Trant, is it who's left he comes behind? back to get her once, yeah. once she's like ready he comes back to bring her to court 
And he says, you know, come, let's go. I'll bring you, you know, like, like, like I'm going to do what the king told me to do. And she said, it's not, you're going to hit me again. And he says, are you just saying you're not going to come? Uh, yeah. And, and uh, she responds, yes, but you are no true knight, Sir Merrin. And then she goes to think Sandra Clegane would have laughed at that, Sansa knew. She seems to be feeling an affinity towards Sandra Clegane as well. They do seem to be finding some type of relationship and connection uh, subtly, which I think was interesting. Yeah, it's it does seem nice and positive in spin on that. But it is worth noting that Sandra Clegane would have been laughing at her. <laughs> she wasn't making a joke here. She was trying to insult Sir Merrin. And mm-hmm. she knew that this was not an insult that would work for Sandra. You are no true knight. His response would have been, what the hell is a true knight? My brother is a true knight. Fuck off with that. And of course, it doesn't land with Sir Merrin either, but in a very different way. It's not that he didn't laugh, or it's not that he laughed it off. He didn't even get mad. He just didn't care. He, he had no thoughts on her in any way shape or form there's nothing she could do to hurt him right um with that said i'll kind of wrap up this chapter very quickly like i said we go from her really just in the throes of 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 horror from what happened in her room to being face to face with joffrey and dragged into court uh and cleaned up there she gets the words of wisdom from sandra clegane just bear it and just do Mm -hmm. what he wants it'll make it easier save yourself the pain I... One final mm-hmm. note before we get to the, the wall is just one of the cases we see Joffrey deal with is a tavern singer accused of making a song that ridiculed yeah. the late King Robert. And I just love this moment because Sansa is so close to understanding the politics of it. He, Joffrey makes the singer sing the song again. It was sort of a funny song, all about Robert fighting with a pig. The pig was the boar who'd killed him, Sansa knew, but in some verses it almost sounded as if he were singing about the queen. And of course we know that the queen having been responsible for the king's death is a rumor that's taking, making its way through the streets. And so singing a funny song about how the queen is the pig that killed fat King Robert right. seems like a perfect place for a satirist to go. And it's just straight over Sansa's head, which I enjoy. I'll add too that just while a, she's, she's just uh, slightly too young for that. While, while she's in court, she has a different thought that comes to mind, uh, and it's a quote from Lord Baelish, uh, Peter, Peter Baelish, Littlefinger. Uh, there are no heroes, and she remembered what Lord Peter had said to her here in this very hall in the court. Quote, uh, life is not a song, sweetling, he told her. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. In life, the monsters win, she told herself. And again, that sort of fall from grace from the stories that she wants to appreciate mm-hmm. and love. Uh, the chapter ends the way that I said. They leave there. Joffrey really is trying to get a reaction from her, from taking her up to whatever, the top, to, you know, to see her father's head on a spike. Uh, she's she's taken Sandra Clegane's advice to heart. That's fine, my, my grace. Yes, my lord. Okay. Like, if this is what you want to show me, I'll stand here and be... What else can she do? Uh, Joffrey tries to get more of a reaction. He takes her to see other heads that are impaled on spikes up there. Septimordain. R.I.P. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't care about her. But neither does uh, Sansa, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, not that she doesn't care, but the fact is, is she's found she a numbness. She steals herself. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think... she, she found somewhere to go within herself that doesn't give Joffrey what he wants, while nonetheless protecting her from his outrage. She gives him no reason to react which I think is uh, is a very impressive move from her, kind of a, a trauma adaption that she seems to be uh, bringing in in a very smart way to keep herself safe here. Yeah. I will say that the chapter ends with a fun quip. Uh, Joffrey's still trying to get a rise out of her, you know, basically says, I'm saving these two spikes here for my two uncles. Uh, everybody's saying that I can't leave right now because of all this fighting that's going on, but I, I think soon enough I'll put together my own army 
of people to follow me out, and I'll go get your your brother and put his head up here. Uh, I'll serve you his head. And uh, Sansa can't help herself. She makes a comment. She says, maybe my brother will give me your head. Right. Uh, to which Joffrey has somebody hit her again. Sir Marin. Sir Marin once again. Yeah, this asshole. And... Uh, and sure enough, we have this. This uh, Sansa has this brief moment saying, "You know, I could throw myself off the wall right now. I could take him with me. What's the difference?" Yeah. Uh, but Sander Clegane kind of gets between her and Joffrey, whether he knows he's preventing her from throwing Joffrey off or not. But again, tenderness, offering her, I think, a handkerchief for her bleeding lip. Right. And that's really how the chapter ends. Uh, you know, is a delicacy, a delicate moment between Sander Clegane and Sansa, and Sansa. You know, basically saying thank you, sir, and saying that she remembers her courtesies. She understands that yeah. she's going to have to play this character. She's going to have to follow Sanders' advice because otherwise it's just a lot of pain for her in front of her. More so yeah, than this, it's going to be without it. This end of the chapter is a nice echo to earlier in the book. She was a good girl and always remembered her courtesies. And earlier in the book, we have seen on two different occasions, no, I'm good, or no, I will be good, right. with Lady, and then again with Cersei. That was her defense mechanism, her way to protect the good ones get treated right. Here, it's not this will get me treated right. It's not good things will come to me by being good. It's I can keep myself safe by being good. I can protect myself by using these courtesies, by using the 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 ladies' words and the ladies' courtesies the way Septimore Dane taught me, which mm-hmm. is a really fun inversion from the way she had thought about the world before. It's no longer I get what I deserve by doing right, but rather I can use these tools that I've been equipped with to ends that that serve me. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not that she's learning, oh, I need to be more like Arya and be violent so mm-hmm. as to do these things because that wouldn't be her. She wouldn't be able to be successful in that. Instead, she can find the tools that she has and use those in a way to survive. Yeah, strong, strong agree. I, I'll say I've been pretty bitchy about Sansa, I, you know, this yeah. entire book. <laughs> yes, you have. This has been the first more realistic moment with her that I'm really enjoying. There's there's a little bit more of a yeah. humanity here from her than we've seen so far. Uh, I we am, were seeing hints, and, yeah. and I was trying to point those out and emphasize the hints of where it was starting to crack. But here it has shattered, and here yeah. we're left with a person instead of the naive child that she had been throughout this point. And, you know, it's, a, it's just a sad fact of life and of art that it so often takes the traumatic event, the difficult, the hardship, the struggle uh, to cause that growth and to bring her into the next level. But it's the transition from being kind of the caricature of a preteen adolescent girl into a human into a person a fully fleshed out person at this stage and so it makes perfect sense that this is is where you'd start to enjoy reading that more with uh what's happened over these two chapters we just talked about and recently in some chapters we just read and even in the daenerys chapter we'll talk about in just a moment i'm reminded of uh that that famous first line from anna karenina where it's uh, you know like 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 families happinesses are generally similar but all families' miseries are very unique, and and that's yes. what makes like an interesting story. And and I think that's what we're finding here. Things are falling apart. What was supposed to be, I'm saying this in a very general way. Not that the, obviously it's not supposed to be this. It's not this, but what to us as the reader was supposed to be the heroic Stark clan, right? The happy family, yeah, the loving family, figuring out the mystery of what's Ned's going to figure out this mystery with John Aaron issues and things like that. Catelyn and Rob are going to hold down Winterfell 
Sansa and Arya are going to have their mini adventures and stuff. This has fallen apart completely. And with that is coming, at least for me, a lot more interest in what's about to happen. Definitely. Uh, there's, a, there's a part of me that, that, and I think I'd said this in an earlier episode, a few, a few episodes ago maybe, but uh, that book one of A Song of Ice and Fire, the, you know, the series here, really is, an, is, is sort of an appetizer dish to the the more heavy weight of my, what might be happening after it's now a really fun apart. story and it's a very compact story it is a fantasy tale mm. that is hitting on a lot of the tropes of the investigation and ned as the loving father figure and the good guy protagonist against the evil lannisters and now that things are starting to break we're moving away from some of that built-in structure into something that makes these stories unique and that, that i really enjoy about them yeah. so i'm excited you're you're having the same feeling there awesome I uh, I got nothing else on this chapter. Should we keep moving? Let's do it. Danny nine. Danny nine. Danny nine. You uh you get some big points, some gold stars for this one. You you had a directly on point prediction last week that I got to give you credit for. Uh, but we'll get to that. Tell us what moment. it was, because I'm sure I just feel right about everything I've ever said. Well, you had predictions about uh, multiple different results yeah, from Miri okay. Mazdor's uh, spell, and uh, both of them were directly on the money. You hit the nail on the head. Her motivations, however, yeah. you swung and missed. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I think that's a passing grade right there. That you, you, the accuracy to the first two was really impressive. I, I got to give you props there. Awesome. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I'm excited to dive into it. Uh, the Danny chapter starts right on the heels of where we left her. Uh, last we saw, Khal Drogo was dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, she begs Miri Mazdur, the Magi character, the sheep woman priestess, uh, to do what she can to save Khal Drogo's life. She says, I can do dark, dark magic, but life for a life. Uh, and sure enough, this happens. At the same time, there's a little bit of some small revolting going on from mm-hmm. the Kalasar, you know, group if you will yes. uh, he fell off his horse the man fell off his horse he's not the leader anymore and that really means that Khaleesi is not a Khaleesi anymore if the call is not a call the Khaleesi's not a Khaleesi exactly um, there's some fighting and some spat that goes on this is on the last chapter and and it ends with uh, uh, it, what seems to be Daenerys maybe even being ready to give birth something's happening with her baby inside of her mm-hmm. and uh jorah mormont carries her into this tent of magic where miri's mazdor is uh is is kind of casting her spell for Caldrogo to survive that's where it left off we start with daenerys in this chapter with her in basically a fever dream mm-hmm. in fact that's how it starts wings shadowed her yeah. fever dreams <laughs> like uh yeah, it says that right i uh, there's I really loved how much dreams are coming up right now and, and sort of this birthing of this magical area of the book that we really haven't had too much to touch on throughout this whole book. Uh, starting yes. with Bran just now and now here with Daenerys. She is in a fever dream. There's a lot going on here. Um, a lot of it gets clarified soon thereafter, but I honestly took a lot of it as it, like, from this dreamscape, the way that it ended up being described. She's understanding that her baby is probably gone uh, in this dream. There's a lot of talk about not wanting to wake the dragon and a lot of dragon imagery. Uh, She turns into a dragon and flies. Uh, And I think that that there's... It is... I'm going to say this with no criticism. It is unsubtle in the fact that something is being awakened in her 
from this experience. Right. Clearly there has been a change now. This dream experience that she's going through, similar to Brand's dream experience in a coma, it's clear there's a change. This one seems much, much stronger in the present. Bran is still trying to understand. I'm getting the sense that that uh, Daenerys is going to have uh, a heavy experience of whatever this is, and we see it soon, pretty pretty much as soon as she wakes up. Yeah. Yeah, there's two uh, themes throughout this dream sequence here. One is the repeated uh, imagery of the red door that we know she associates with childhood and, and the only conception of home she's had in her life. On the other hand, as you've emphasized repeatedly, is the dragon. There is first a dragon blotting out the stars in the sky. There's repeated mentions of waking the dragon. There's repeated mentions of Rhaegar was the last dragon, which is something that Jorah Mormont had told her. And then, uh, of course, she turns into a dragon. And then the finally, like you were just saying, she greets her child. She meets him. He looks like a mixture of her and Drogo. He has her eyes and hair and Drogo's skin and face effectively. And then he too, he opens his mouth and breathes fire once again with this dragon imagery uh, and, and connecting that to her ancestors and to her sigil and to her family. And so it's, it just seems to be whether they're competing or compatible concepts, these ideas of home and childhood and family and history all wrapped up together in the imagery of this dream. I'll say there's some really fun direct imagery I really liked a lot. She cries, uh, she weeps for her child, uh, but as soon as her tears touch her her skin, uh, they turn to steam, which I just thought was fun. I'll add, too, that there's a really wonderful moment in this fever dream where uh, ghosts line the hallway dressed in the faded remnant of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. This is... It's almost identical to the crypts we just saw, the crypt that we just saw the yes, Starks going through. Absolutely. I and love I just that. Think, yeah, and it's really fun to see. I, I, again, I, I just want to give credit to George R. R. Martin. I don't think he needs it from me, since clearly people <laughs> seem to like this. Uh, but the similarities don't feel like, you know, poor poor man writer's mimicry. This is something that makes sense. People at this level who come from such a lineage would have a relationship to an image of crypts of a lineage of who they came from and a strength in that yeah absolutely a moment here too where she sees her brother Rhaegar real Rhaegar not her son that she was having Rhaegar uh, mounted on a stallion as black as his armor fire glimmered red through the narrow eye slit of his helm the last dragon Sir Jorah's voice whispered faintly the last the last Danny lifted his polished black visor the face within was her own. Mm-hmm. Little throwback to Star Wars, uh, but uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, I uh, like that. I went straight to as, of course, I would to Westworld. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Similar idea, and and I love how that ties into what you were just talking about about this transformation that it seems to be calling to Danny. I uh, I similarly bring in this mantra throughout it you don't want to wake the dragon do you which of course is one of the first lines we heard between viserys and her Mm -hmm. but it echoes and it slowly fades until the last ones we hear wake the dragon the dragon and of course that then leads directly to her seeing herself in rhaegar's armor you can see that she is starting to believe about herself what has been hinted all book long that she is the targaryen heir the next part of this mm-hmm. dynasty, the one who will take over in a way that Viserys never was. 
there's a real sense. Of, so, so this is kind of the end of her dream, and she wakes up, and she she's she's a little disoriented and things like this. She's parched. Uh, it's unclear to us as the reader who's still around, who's not. Her maids are still there. Her her mm-hmm. the, her three or four women uh, caretakers for her. Three now. Crucially, we learn that one of them is is now dead. Oh, that's right. That's right. I. Uh, there is, I'll say with this, though, a real sense, and it's to everything that we were just talking about, a sense of sort of Gandalf the Grey becoming Gandalf the White. Transformation yes. is clear. She's getting her sea legs under her. She's definitely been through a lot, but she is clearly standing strong. I I made a note a page or two into this after she woke up. You know, she's calling for, for uh, you know, water, and she needs food and sustenance, which is great. Jorah Mormont kind of shows up at one point, and he looks terrible. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, she calls for Mirima's door. She wants to know what's going on. She wants to know what happened to Khal Drogo. My note here was baby question mark. Like she's clearly not yes. concerned about her baby. Well, Which, she keeps. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, like, to me, I was actually okay with it because it seemed addressed in the dream. I think she knows what happened to her baby. <laughs> Which is that she right. lost her baby. So that that was sort of right. my feeling. It wasn't directly mentioned here. It gets mentioned a little bit later, a little more directly. But go ahead. What were you going to say? So I just had a different one. She has this repeated thought that there's an urge she must do something. Mm-hmm. And the way it's framed throughout these couple of pages of her getting her legs back under her, like you were saying, is as though it's about the baby. I have to. There's another moment in a, in a little bit that she's bring. I want to hold. And... It's written in such a way so as to make you think, baby, except each time it leads her to the dragon eggs. She never brings up the baby. Instead, she wants the eggs that she has, which were also heavily featured throughout the imagery of the dream she just had. And so that seems to have supplanted in her instinctual mind on an instinctual level the baby that I agree with you on some subconscious level she knows she has lost. I we definitely have a strong relationship between her and these eggs right now, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and she really is starting to feel life within them. She she feels a heat radiating from them. She there, there's again something has changed. Something has changed a lot and drastically. It seems like these eggs are strongly strongly involved. I'm ready for dragons, Dan. Um, yeah. She's still trying to understand. She's. I basically still waking up throughout these several pages. She's awake now, but where's the call? What's going? He lives, she's told, but there's a darkness in the eyes of that who is she who told her that? Uh she she where's where's my uh where where's my son? She finally asks, uh she's told by her handmaid, the boy he did not live. Um I'm I want to there's a recurring theme that starts to come up through this theme like a re- recurring line basically, which is like don't look back. You need to take here and move it forward, mm-hmm. uh, because if looking back will will it will be a weakness you cannot hold. You, you right. This is not a time for weakness. It'll defeat you. It'll it'll destroy you. You cannot look backwards. You must progress. Uh, and I think that that's such a. It's kind of similar, although very different in practice to Sansa's response. You cannot look at what you've lost. Like you just said, she learns she lost the baby. We actually learn concretely Miriam's door shows up and explains the baby was monstrous. Yeah. Twisted. I drew him forth myself. He was scaled like a lizard, blind with the stub of a tail and small leather wings like the wings of a bat. When I touched him, the flesh sloughed off the bone and inside he was full of grave worms and the stink of corruption. He had been dead for years. For years. She 
gives birth to a dragon, but the dragons have been gone. And this is this is what we have here. I want to get your thoughts, though. You know, obviously the symbolism is the strongest part of this, and I think that that is intentional and clear. But from an in-story way, we've been talking about the resurgence of these mystical aspects of the story. What's going on here? How did how is how did Danny give birth to a reptilian creature that has been dead for years? Was this the result of Miri Mazdor's spell? Was this always what it was? Is it some some birth defect of hers? Uh, I mean, certainly we know the Targaryens have engaged in incest before. What's hmm. your thoughts on this? Are you saying that they've engaged in incest for so long that having a baby with somebody not part of the family is going to wreck that baby? <laughs> yeah, maybe that, that maybe that broke, it, broke I, them. I think, you, you know, I'm going to say it like as a direct comment about the story, but in all honesty, I think the more general sense about it is what matters. The direct comment is, yeah, I think it was the blood magic. I, I think that that, <laughs> that, that that did, you know... Uh, you know, what is it? There's something that I feel like I've seen in medical TV shows, right? Where it's like, somebody has a disease, but they're fine until they fall down and they break their arm. And that Ooh, break okay. is what releases all these toxins or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, it was like activated by Miri Mazdor's spell. Exactly. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I would go as far as to say, and it, it, I mean, it's counterfactual, right? Like, I have no idea. This is not what's happening. But if Khal Drogo didn't have any problems and wasn't wounded... I would assume she would have had a really great baby, like the one that she saw, who would be really strong right. and has this power, you know, uh, of the horse that mounts the world and all of it. That said, I think that that there was an activation. I, th- I think this activation came, was it at the trauma of what happened or the actual magic of Miriam Usdor? We do find quickly here in the chapter, uh, right from where we are, the intentions that you referred to about Miriam Usdor, which is, mm-hmm. I was not here to be helpful. You, you did not Danny says I saved you and she says saved me I'd already been raped twice by the time you got there I watched them burn you know my my uh, my temple to the ground like this is not saving saving you know this is yeah nothing. this actually this comes in a moment specifically they, they pivot from the baby uh, and this is the first confirmation we get that I was talking about with you mm-hmm. you warned me that only death could pay for life I thought you meant the horse no Miri Mazdor said that was a lie you told yourself you knew the price the price was the baby uh, it's interesting to me that this immediately follows on Danny blaming Ser Jorah for bringing her into the tent which strikes me as false uh, it seems false. It, it, Danny had agreed to the price. I, we don't get confirmation on this one way or the other. But it, it it makes me wonder, would the price have been the same if she had stayed outside the tent? Mm. And certainly while the spell was being cast, while Miri Mazdor was doing what she was doing, is when Danny started to have the pain in her womb yeah. and the blood and the beginning of what appeared to be a miscarriage. And so, you know, for her to push some of that guilt off of herself and what she chose to do onto Ser Jorah seems, seems very unfair to me. I get that. I definitely read it a little bit different than, than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that, wow, there is this incredible pivot that's happened for her as a character and her sentiment and her attitude. I think there is this sort of lingering sense of, yeah, wait a second. You know, Ser Jorah did some moves that she, she, I don't think she blames, blames him as much as it's like, Right. There's a guilt aspect that she knows he feels that she's not ready to to relieve him from yet. I also don't think that the baby was lost because they went in the tent. I think the baby was the price whether they went in the tent or not. Yeah. I uh, she there's also a mention by the way that that Danny realizes that it was Jora who killed her baby, actually like 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 murdered the the this gross deformed child, I think. 
Did I say that right? Because I know that we said that oh, the babe was... No, that's not how I read it. She's, Sir Jorah had killed her son, Danny knew. He had done what he did for love and loyalty, yet he had carried her into a place no living man mm, should go and fed her baby to the darkness. So I read that. I, I guess I really like what the way you just said it, that she's not ready to relieve him of this guilt mm-hmm. yet because doing so requires bringing on to herself the full weight of the realization that she signed this deal with the devil, knowing on some level that this is what it would take. Uh, and I like that way of putting it. We find in her conversation with Miriam's door, uh, where we get this revelation that, well, I'm jumping a little bit around in time here. There's this conversation. They realize Miriam's door's intention. You know, Miriam's door is not here to be helpful. She was not a plant. She wasn't a spy out to kill Daenerys. Mm-hmm. That said, she was just a pissed off person who suffered. Daenerys does say. Show me what I bought with my son's life, exactly. which is what leads them to this conversation. They go to find Drogo. I, when they go to find Drogo, she realizes that they're alone. Uh, there's a handful of people. It's his blood riser, riders, I think, that stayed behind. Not his, hers. Her blood riders. Her yes. handmaidens. Blood riders? Her handmaidens and blood riders. She has blood riders. Drogo had blood riders. Oh. His are dead. Uh, in the list of people, you know, uh, uh, Jorah had fought one of them. There were a couple of others. But it's the other members of the senior leadership that have fled and named themselves Call. We get this line. There are a dozen new Kalasars on the Dothraki Sea where once there was only Drogos. So Drogos' strength was holding together a coalition, a very large coalition. And these lesser men are unable to fully take his spot, but have gathered some groups around them out of the broken pieces of what's splintered and maybe they'll go off and fight each other and and somebody will grow through competition and through victory but at least as of now nobody's been able to to take over that spot um but regardless everybody but the old and and the sick and the (laughs) elderly have now left uh there's this beautiful moment though with all this as she's getting more news about what had happened she hears about one particular uh, uh, Dothraki who was particularly violent to some people that she had been kind to. Mm-hmm. And she goes one of the other some... women she saved, specifically Eroe. Yep. And, uh, and she makes this comment. Uh, at first, it starts with the line that I was saying, right? If I look back, I am lost. This is what she took away from that dream stage. She can't go mm-hmm. back and think about what she should have done or could have done or anything like that. And she goes on to say, It was a cruel fate, Danny said, yet not so cruel as Mago, the guy who, who committed this act, as Mago's will be. I promise you that by the old gods and the new, by the lamb god and the horse god and every god that lives, I swear it by the mother of mountains and the womb of the world, before I am done with them, Mago and Kojako will plead for the mercy they showed, uh, plead for the mercy they showed Iroa, the woman that was killed. And I love this moment because all of those around her saying, are you out of your mind right now? You have yeah. no army. You have no power. You have no anybody. And she responds right away to all of these comments that she's getting. She's, she lifted her head. And I am Daenerys Stormborn, Daenerys of House Targaryen, of the blood of Aegon the Conqueror and Magor the Cruel and Old Valeria before them. I am the dragon's daughter. And I swear to you, these men will die screaming. Now bring me to Khal Drogo. She's stepping up in a way that, that she definitely was stepping up as a Khaleesi, but something has shifted. She, she, is, she has taken the, the helm of her family and mm-hmm. is running forward with it. I think she is, she is yeah. confident in her powers. Absolutely. Uh, we find that we, we come to meet Khal Drogo, and uh, he is a shell of a man. Uh, yeah, he's, he's blind. 
I think he I think seems to be effectively brain dead. Yeah, that's that's the impression I got. I think it's Jorah who says, you know, yeah, like he'll he'll follow you if you take him somewhere. He'll eat food if you put it in his mouth, and he'll drink if you pour it on his lips. But ain't nothing going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of rounds out the conversation that Danny has with Miriam Azdor. I, you know, she she says accusingly, you know, you knew you knew this is what you're doing, and. Miriam Mazdor says, yeah, it was wrong of them to burn my temple. Damn right I knew. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, um, I love this exchange here. I, I really enjoy this. Uh, she says, your spells are costly. He lives. You asked for life. You paid for life. Danny says, this is not life for one who was as Drogo was. His life was laughter and meat roasting over a fire pit and a horse between his legs. His life was an arak in his hand and his bells ringing in his hair as he rode to meet an enemy. His life was his blood riders and me and the son I was to give him. When will he be as, as he was? And I'll come back to this in a moment. Uh, Danny says, you knew. You knew what I was buying. Why would you do this? And this is where she says, it was wrong of them to burn my temple. Uh, you cheated me. You didn't give me life, Danny says. And she, I spoke for you. I saved you. Saved me? Three riders had taken me, not as a man takes a woman, but from behind, as a dog takes a bitch. The fourth was in me when you rode past. How then did you save me? I saw my God's house burn when I had healed good men, where I had healed good men beyond counting. My home they burned as well, and in the street I saw piles of heads. I saw the head of a baker who made my bread. I saw the head of a boy I had saved from dead-eye fever only three moons past. I heard children crying as the riders drove them off with their whips. Tell me again what you saved. Danny says, your life. Miri Mazdur laughed cruelly. Look to your call and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. It's an eye for an eye. You you saved just the life, just the beating heart, and left everything else to die, so I gave you the same. I'll add that I really like Danny's sort of internal response to this, which is, well, I guess I can't kill Miri Mazdur right now because that's not enough. Yeah, uh, if she's life shown was worth me with the value of was yeah, death. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, I, and I like that a lot. Um, from there, the chapter really rounds itself out. There's just a page or two left. Uh, Danny goes and spends time with Cal Drogo. And she, she, uh, she, she tries to have sex with him. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's actually, I found it to be a really lovely moment. She's just trying really hard to, yeah. to find an intimacy and to try to, to reach and touch a depth of, of connection that hopefully might bring this man back. I, it's, a, it's a real love and, and connection there. And it doesn't. I see this. Yeah. Yeah. I see this in context of, of what you've been focusing on throughout this chapter. This is her one attempt. She's letting herself look backwards for mm. one night. Yeah. She's spending one night with him, thinking about what could have been, what could maybe, if she's lucky, still be. And ultimately, it doesn't work. And this is her final cutting that thread and deciding, I can't look back. I was right to have that response. The dream was right. This is where I have to be. Yeah. And I'll say that the cutting of that thread is is she goes and she she puts an end to Cal Drogo's life. She she takes a pillow and smothers him. And and it it's you know it's weird to say it. It works really well in the book, but it really is an act of mercy. Uh, mm-hmm. Miriam Azdor won. You know, I think without without any doubt, Miriam Azdor got what she was trying to get, and it came at the, at many costs. Uh, one being the relationship that Danny had with Cal Drogo. Uh, which was a really beautiful one, uh, and, and a really, a really, a really kind one that just isn't going to be there again. However, I think it's this, you know, if the cost of the life was another life was her baby's life, and the life was just this shell of a life, I think that the the real, you know, what we're seeing is that the cost of Daenerys growing into being a stormborn, you know, being 
being a Targaryen and the next yeah. dragon was two lives. Uh, yes. You know, in loss of a kingdom, and and I think she came to understand what that means here in a way that embodies what Viserys was trying to share. So, in, in like unwell, like he really couldn't share it well at all. Uh, in like a metaphorical sense, she has purchased a life with these mm, lives. Yeah, it wasn't Drogo. Exactly. It was herself, her becoming of this like this that. self. Uh, there's one other note. You know, the the chapter ends with her smothering and drogo and, and this act of mercy as you were calling it but miri mazdor has this moment of prophecy uh maybe but more likely an expression of her rage and her anger as danny asks her when will drogo come back to me and then here at the end of the chapter danny reiterates what miri mazdor says to drogo she repeats it to him to you know with tears in her eyes when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when my womb quickens again and I bear a living child, then you will return my sun and stars and not before. And of course, 90% of this is an emphasis of this is impossible. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, this is Miri Mazdur saying this will never occur. But there is one moment when my womb quickens again, when I bear a living child, of course, this is Miriam Azdor expressing that she will be barren from here on out as part of the cost of this. But it strikes me that that would be something difficult to know, something difficult to identify like that. Where, you know, whereas she's listing cosmic impossibilities, like the mountains blowing in the wind, this is an interesting bit of prophecy foreshadowing. Maybe there, there is something to it uh, that strikes me. I, I don't know if you had any thoughts there, but I just wanted to throw it out into the world. I think that's interesting. I, I didn't have thoughts there. I really found what Miriam Azdor say, was saying, this whole, you know, like when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when you're, you know, when, when you give, you know, or your womb quickens again. I found that to just be a poetic way of saying never. This is not <laughs> going to happen. In fact, the next line after it here in this moment is never the darkness cried. Never, never, never. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that, that well, and I'll, I'll say this, that I personally do not expect to see Cal Drogo again. Yes, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. I. Uh, I do think that this is the the opening of a door into a new world of Daenerys, and I'm very curious to see what that means. It would. So. So I don't think I'll see Khal Drogo again. It wouldn't surprise me if one day I see the sun rise from the west. Okay. And so I'll be right, interested to see like how this manifests and where this goes. A, a Jericho kind of situation. Yeah. The sun freezing in the heavens. Or... <laughs> Or going backwards, or whatever it may be. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't have any uh, any other thoughts here. I think that really wraps us up for this. I agree with you. I love this set of chapters. We're really getting into the mystical side of things uh, and, and starting to see some progression from some characters and uh, really a fun uh, entry point into the following books, you know, following up on or, or coming to the end of this one. Yeah, for sure. Where are we going next? What are we doing? We're doing three again, so there's only four chapters left in this book. We've got two episodes left to go before we're done. Next week is Tyrion, Jon, and Catelyn. Uh, so touch and base with some characters we haven't seen in a little bit. We'll get back to the war front and, and you know, maybe see some more reactions to the get back to the nose. big events uh, of what's been going on. Amazing. Well, I can't wait for it, Dan. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you then. 
That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones Tyrion 9, John 9, and Catelyn 11. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast, and tell us your feedback or thoughts at our email address, brotherswithoutbanners at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for listening.